Good evening. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 9 p.m. on CJSW 90.9 FM. If you ever miss our show live, you can catch our earlier episodes on CJSW.com. Writer's Block is hosted by a group of literary enthusiasts and features inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and other literary segments. Without further ado, let's get started. Coming up first, we have an interview with Kim Rashidi on her new book of tarot card poetry, titled Fortunate. After that, we have a short story by L. Marie Harris. Following, we have a second interview with Jenny Kwong and Kelly Kaur about her new novel, Letters to Singapore. And finally, we have a short fiction reading by Joanna Knudsen. Let's get started. Good evening, everyone. This is Maddie Robinson interviewing Kim Rashidi about her book of tarot poetry for CJSW 90.9 FM. Hi, Kim. How's it going? Hi, it's going great. How are you doing? Excellent. Um, I wanted to ask you about this book of tarot poetry because it caught my interest. I'm very interested in tarot cards and I'm also interested in just general tarot reading, but also poetry reading. So I thought I would ask you a little bit about your book as it did catch my attention. What brought you into writing a book of tarot poetry? Like what was your inspiration behind that? Yeah, so my mom reads tarot cards and we've had a tarot deck in the house for as long as I can remember. And when I was doing my master's degree during the pandemic, when everything went online, um, we started studying in one of my courses, the illustrator of the original Rider Waite Smith deck. Uh, her name is Pamela Coleman Smith. We started studying her and her contributions to um, the, the yellow 90s which were periodicals in the 1890s. So I became really interested in her and I felt that there was something more to explore there. And um, I started researching her because I was doing a seminar on her and I was just fascinated by everything that I found. And I wanted to connect more with tarot and tarot has its own complete language. And I was, it was kind of hard for me to penetrate that world. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to start writing a poem a day about each card just to help myself understand it. And then that's how it started. I wrote one a day until I was done with it. And I was like, this could be a book. It could be used for divination. Like it would be such a cool idea. And so that's how it started. I, I started, um, I started gathering a manuscript for it at that point. And the poetry that appears in the book is actually the same exact order that I wrote it in. So it's in a completely random order. I would pull a card a day and write the poems that day. So it's just based on the day that I wrote it, the order in the book. That makes so much sense because when I opened it, I expected it to be laid out kind of like a typical, like, you know how every tarot deck always comes with a little book that explains each card. I thought it would be in a specific order or something like that. And when I opened it, I was like, oh, it's starting with the eight of wands. That's kind of weird. Like usually it's, it's not this random, but I kind of liked it because that's what I was thinking too. I thought, oh, you could just flip through the book and you could get a poem for your day. Just like you would flip through a deck of cards and get a card for your day. So it doesn't need to be in a specific order because the point is that you could kind of read whichever poems meant for you, I guess. So that's kind of what I was getting when I was reading it is like, oh, this is also a form of divination, not just a poetry book, which is really, really cool. <laughs> exactly. It kind of works like a shuffled deck. Like there is no shuffling need. It's like you just open it up and that's the magic of it, I think. I think I think so too. I thought it was a really cool idea. Speaking of, so you mentioned Pamela Coleman Smith and there is a quote at the beginning I've noticed. Um, I quite like her and I, I think she's quite underrated because she has a lot of art that she's done that people haven't even seen besides the tarot cards yes. so when you're studying for your master's and stuff were you kind of like researching her looking into that 
Yeah, so she had a magazine that was a very short magazine. It was about eight pages and it ran 13 issues, I believe, in 1902 to 1903. Um, so I was studying one of the volumes or one of the issues of that magazine. And a lot of it is the original versions hand colored by either her or her team of students that she was teaching coloring and illustration to. And so that's really where, where my fascination with her came in because that, that magazine was extremely unique to all the other ones that I was studying. That's really interesting. Do you know what the magazine was called by any chance? It's called The Green Chief. Interesting. Yeah, I really find her artwork. There's something really vibrant about it and really eye catching, even though a lot of it has like a lot of very like heavy line work. So I might look I might Mm -hmm. go looking into that because I quite like her style of artwork. It kind of almost reminds me of like William Blake or something like it's a little metaphysical, but a little not quite cartoony, but very, very unique. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. A, there's an undercurrent of like loneliness being studied in her pieces, I think, which is very interesting to me because like when I think of tarot, it's about connection and all her artwork explores that, in my opinion, a little bit or like lack of connection or connection. So I, that's that's very um, intriguing to me as well. That does make sense. I've seen some pieces by her. There's that piece of the old man with the tree and that one always screams loneliness to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that one, but there's there's a couple that really like they almost scream loneliness. Like that's kind of the meaning you can almost get from it. That's really yeah. fascinating. Um, so speaking of connection, so I was really interested with some of these poems because I felt like compared to a lot of poetry that I've read like recently, like a lot of it's very like a lot of poetry I read is um very complex and almost difficult to parse while I found these ones almost like offered a way to read them they were very clear which I know that's Mm -hmm. also what tarot is kind of utilized for is to like provide clarity so when you're writing this was there any particular method you're using for the poem or was it really kind of like you pull a card and whatever comes to your head you just write it down was it a bit of both were you kind of like premeditating on some of them or just meditating so, yeah <laughs> actually guess. so it's a bit of both um I did go into each poem in like by getting into a meditative state first and so what I would do was my goal with each poem was to make make it a description of the card basically like paint the image through words but then also have a tidbit of advice in there so you'll see each poem kind of sounds positive at the end and that's just because of like my own spin on life like I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic person so at the end I try to like give an optimistic spin to every single card that actually works as advice as well so that if you were to use it for divination it would actually give you like an action to set up in your own life. I found it very interesting because you mixed up a lot of the major arcana with the minor arcana and just kind of did whatever. Were you ever taken aback by some of the major arcana that were really heavy or had really heavier themes? Because I know I, for a while I worked in a little hippie store and I know a lot of the girls are scared of tarot cards because they thought it was like too negative <laughs> or like, you know, cause you get death or you get the tower and all the, all these cards like look so like horror movie kind of tropes or something. Did it ever did it ever scare you to try and put a like a positive spin on it? Or were you kind of like, oh, well, I know that there's always a lesson underneath. So you just focus on that. Were you like inspired by the imagery or the 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 language or kind of both, I guess, is the question. Well, like you said, there are some cards that are typically scarier, like, for example, death or the tower. But the way I look at it is tarot is a story, right? It tells a story about like a journey. And those are some of the most natural things like endings and death are one of the most natural things that happen in life. And so I wanted to make it more accessible rather than have it be something that scares somebody off. So I wanted to 
right? Something that would actually be encouraging. Like, yeah, this is an ending, but that also means something else is beginning. So that was my mindset going into the scarier cards. I noticed with death, you have a line where it says one new message, which I thought was really interesting. It almost made me think of that movie, You Got Mail or something like that. Like something that comes out of the blue, it kind of surprises you, but also until you open it, you have no idea what it says, right? Exactly. Which is almost kind of like how the cards are too, because until you actually go forward, you don't know if it's a scary thing or not, right? Sometimes you get an email or a message and it, it really scares you or makes you nervous because you don't know what's inside, but that's the beauty of it is that there's always something new or like a new opportunity. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know how true this is, but I read somewhere that feeling nervous and excited are actually like the same feeling inside your body, but it's just your mind that makes up which one you feel. And I feel like that's that same feel with the with the one new message like you you don't know which one it is like you can decide if you're excited or if you're scared yourself so my next question was going to be about your other poetry and your other kind of writing that you do so while when you focus on your writing and you focus on kind of your technique and stuff like that I noticed that a lot of these poems are very like linear they do kind of almost read like something that you could roll out on a fortune cookie or something similar to that like they do have that like almost element of like surprise or fortune Does your other writing kind of follow the same way or was this more of an embark, like a more of an adventure for you to write this? This I definitely went in with the intention, like you're saying, to make it sound like a fortune cookie, essentially. But I don't know if you're familiar with the Persian mystic Hafez, which his poetry was basically like that like you were supposed it was used for uh stitchomancy so you're supposed to open up the book and receive uh, receive a message through almost similar to bibliomancy receive a message basically yes and so that was my intention with going into this book but my other poetry actually is not like that at all like a lot of it is personal and non-linear and like I try to mix up timelines and explore the cosmos like through my poetry so this was a very different approach for me Fair enough. I was just curious because it's such an interesting book. It almost reminds me of, they say there's like, there's tons of divination methods, but there's one where, you know, there's sticks with messages on them and then you pull a number and you grab the stick with the number on it and all sorts of, so it kind of reminded me of something like that, that I did as a kid or, so I was just curious if your other poetry was similar, similar. That's really interesting. Um, Although I'm sure it probably connects in a way too, because if you do very like cosmic poetry, I know like tarot is very cosmic in its own sort of way. I have some more like, I guess, kind of fun questions. So do you have a favorite deck that you like to use? (laughs) Sorry, I really like tarot cards. So I love to ask questions like this. (laughs) Yes, of course. Okay, there are so many beautiful decks that like, I don't have my hands on, but there's just this, the world of tarot is so artistic and I am completely enamored by it. Um, But my favorite deck is the Golden Art Nouveau deck, just because it is so beautiful and the imagery is still very similar to the original Rider Waite Smith deck. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but everybody that I like do readings for with that deck is just like, wow, this is like the most beautiful deck I've ever seen. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I feel like it looks kind of like stained glass a little bit, if I'm right. I, I do have it. I can show you. Oh, I, I would mean, love this that. This is not going to work for a radio show. No, I have a <laughs> running. Oh, like yes, 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 yes. I've seen that one. Yes, yes. That one is beautiful. And it still has the foil. same imagery. Yeah, yes. exactly. It, I, it adds an element of like luxury, I would say. I don't know. I love the gold foiling in this. Yeah, I do too. I, I, I love seeing the ones that have a bit of gold or silver in them. I feel like they add a bit of like, I don't know, spark to exactly. it. Exactly. I will say I have a bit of a running joke with this show that I always interview poets who are like visual poets or something like that. So there's always a joke that they're showing me something and then people on air are like, I can't see this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, no, I like that deck too. I really like the cat ones. Whenever people put cats mm. in their cards, I think that's just great. Yes. But that's just a me thing. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of the literary witches? Deck? I haven't it's heard like of it actually. Like, 
like it like has Sylvia Plath and like a, a lot of um female authors from the past and it's just such a cool deck to me I honestly think that tarot and literature like literature go hand in hand like there's a lot of quotes that kind of stick out to me like you know that there's that Emily Dickinson quote I'm out with lanterns looking for myself I feel like that's such a hermit quote I don't yes. know that's just that's just a me thing though yeah. so I do feel like there's a lot of you can do a lot of overlap there in a really interesting way yeah I'm gonna google it after after this interview because I'm curious now <laughs> The thing is with tarot, like it actually does tell a story. And if you think about human lives, like it's at the end of the day, when you look back, like everything is a story. You, you want to share something with your friend. You're like, oh, I have a story to tell you. Like everything is a story. And that's why it goes hand in hand with literature. Like you're saying, like literary techniques, like everything is a narrative. And tarot just tells you your own narrative. It, like it makes you look at it in the mirror, basically. Oh, totally. I know. I know exactly what you mean. I think, too, it's interesting because both like literature and tarot both they call it reading which I think is so fascinating because exactly. everyone reads something like a slightly different way um and I know when I was studying English we talked a lot about how like two people will look at the same book and just read into it completely different things which I think is super interesting and very divinatory mm -hmm. if we're being honest but and that's why I liked um I put in my little uh reader's note in the beginning that you have to read into these readings because everybody brings their own approach into every single tarot reading and I'm in love with the idea of yeah, I'm giving you a tarot reading, but you're also bringing something to the table to understand this tarot reading. Like mm. everything that we, our experiences and, our, and the stories we tell ourselves are also valid in readings. Mm -hmm. And I guess my next question would be um, maybe one of my last questions. So it sounds like you're a reader and that this has kind of been a part of your life and that your mother had cards and stuff like that. Have you ever had an experience that's been very enlightening for you when you're reading or even when you're writing like one of these poems? Did you ever, ever have an experience where you like pulled a card, wrote a poem, and then later you realize what you're saying to yourself or something like that? Like a spooky moment where you're like, oh my gosh, this is, I kind of predicted this, but I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, well, the funny thing is, when I first gathered up the manuscript for this book, I used I used it as divination to ask about the outcome of this book. And I don't even remember what poem I got. But I was like, wow, that's like, amazing. It's spot on for how I'm feeling. And like, so that's why at first I kind of was like, it's just poetry. And then after that, I was like, no, this is divination. Like doing this own reading with this, doing my own reading with this book about the book just made me realize the doors that it could open for people that are maybe new to tarot or like looking for another way to engage with tarot as well. I mean, in some ways it's more interesting than the original, because I know the original, like the Rider Waite deck, the little booklet that comes with it, like a lot of people don't really connect with those meanings so maybe they could have this book instead right if they wanted like a new way to kind of like read into the card or something like that I mean I hope so yeah <laughs> <laughs> I guess I do kind of have a second question so I don't know if you read re reversals would you ever write reversal poetry because I know some people read reversal cards that kind of yeah. just occurred to me yeah I do read reversals um but what I was doing with this book actually is that you'll see that in some poems like there's um stars to like separate the poem mm -hmm. um so that's me like coming to the poem with another approach about the card but I actually do include like it's not obvious because I'm not stating like okay this is another way you can read it but like you'll notice that sometimes the two parts of a poem like don't connect at all and it's because like I'm giving it another approach just in case like one part of the poem doesn't resonate like the second part will um, but it's not completely explicit and not I'm not doing it for all cards so it's kind of just whatever you vibe with in the poem that's yours. <laughs> 
one of my last questions then would be for your future writing and for your future, if it's in schooling or not in schooling, do you have any other plans for another collection, something different? Were you planning on writing short stories, anything else that we should be looking out for in the next few years? Yes, I actually just compiled a manuscript that needs lots and lots of editing, um, but it is a spiritual book as well. And it's kind of like about the illusion of duality. So the first part of the book is painful, it's emotional, it's it's sad. The second part is kind of more enlightened and comforting. And so when we're going through either parts of life, we think that just this is it. We never consider that like every facet of life is just one container of life. So I'm trying to send the message of non-duality with this book. Like it, it's just an illusion that things are different, but at the end of the day, like all of it is just life, you know? And so I'm really excited to finish working on that. That's actually really interesting. I feel like I would really like this book. So is it poetry or is it more prose? Is it more? It's a little bit of both, but I would say it, it's poetic. I guess if it's duality, then you can do both at the same time. Exactly. There's no yeah. difference between poetry and poetry. <laughs> yeah. It's all just writing. Yes, exactly. That's really cool. Um, what, what are you thinking of titling it just so, you know, listeners know what to look out for? So it will be called All Done With Love. And you can read that in two ways, of course, as in like, oh, I'm all done with love or everything oh, is all done with I love. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's Thank so great you. I do find literary studies really overlap overlaps with spirituality for me because a lot of the stuff we learn even just in, in reading and you know in, in deconstruction and things like this has a mm-hmm. lot to do with duality exactly or almost yeah. how there's there's paradoxes within each like e- each and every word even has a paradox or a double mm-hmm. meaning right so that's really really cool I'm gonna be on the lookout for that for sure well awesome Well, I will say thank you so much for this quick interview about your book of poetry. I'm so glad I got to do this. When I saw this idea, I was like, oh my gosh, this would be such a fun interview to do because I do really like the cards and I like to ask people who are also into the cards, like what their favorite card is or, you know, what if they've ever had a story with a specific card or anything like that. I don't know if I have any more questions, but thank you so much for coming on. I guess if there is one more, I would ask, like, do you have a favorite card? Um, I do love the star a lot. It's such that an optimistic card. Yes. And the fact that it comes after the tower is just, it, it means something to me, but I can't quite say what. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I, I had to ask. I know everyone... No Oh, everyone yours? always asks um it's really hard because I feel like it almost changes at times I am mm-hmm. a big fan of the star too I really like that one I've also really liked strength though I do like strength yeah. quite a bit that one's a good one yeah it gives especially... me a lot of assurance yeah me too me too that covered a lot of my main questions but I wasn't sure if there's any like poem that you wanted to mention or a poem that you wanted to read for air or if there was even just a story you wanted to mention or anything like that um, I would love to read a poem. We can do a little interactive one if you'd like. So you can Ooh! pick a number for one to 78 <laughs> and oh, I will man. do a reading for you. Oh, I love it. That's so fun. Let's do, I'm feeling 42. Okay. <laughs> it's a very Douglas Let's Adams see. number. I'm sorry. I just opened up the book randomly and it was page 42. Oh my God. <laughs> what the <laughs> See, I, this stuff always happens. I'm telling you. <laughs> Goosebumps. Okay, well, amazing for you because 42 is Ace of Pentacles. So we've got some opportunity coming in for you. Okay, I'll read you out of I'll read you the poem now. Seemingly out of nowhere, an opportunity presents itself, and right through its golden arches, livelihood awaits. Step through with gratitude and find your footing without having assumed that this is foreverhood. Does that resonate? I think 
it does actually especially the last line because you know whenever you embark on like a new project you always think like oh but what if it's what if it's not worth it in the end or what if you get stuck in a job that you don't like or what if what if what if but just nothing's mm-hmm. forever so that makes sense i like that actually that's really cool also yeah. ace of pentacles that's a good card i'm happy it wasn't that's a great card <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad it wasn't uh um, i mean not that any of them are bad but you know I'm not sure if you had any questions or anything else you wanted to tell any of the listeners. I just wanted to thank you for having me on. It was lovely chatting with you and talking about tarot. I would love to, I don't know, talk about tarot more with you. I think we could be friends. I don't know. Do you live in... (laughs) You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. For those who just tuned in, that was Maddie Robinson interviewing Kim Rashidi about her book Fortunate, Tarot Poetry. Fortunate was published on May 3rd, 2022 by Andrews McNeil Publishing. If you're into poetry, tarot cards, fortune telling, or really anything inspired by the divine, you can pick it up at a local bookstore near you. Coming up next, we have a short story by L. Marie Harris. Stay tuned. And the fork ran away with the spoon on CJSW. Let's not live here anymore. Share orange slices and salted peanuts on Route 66. Keep Merle Haggard on repeat. Not bring up last year. Not wonder who she would have looked more like. Not go down that road. Say grace. Stop at that roadside stand. Talk to the man sitting there. Listen to his stories of passing poets and spring tills and unexplained lights flickering in the night sky. Buy the big box of yellow and orange and red tomatoes. Fill our mouths, the juice running down our arms to puddle in our palms. Kiss after we eat the last one. Snap photos of each other in front of the world's biggest metal dinosaur. Send a postcard to the roadside stand man. We get it now, our initials in a flourish. Rewrite our book of revelations in a gentle font. Find an old barn filled with hay. Hunker down until the rains pass. Not turn our bodies away from each other like yesterday, last month, last year. Lock eyes again. Make a steeple of our fingertips. Remember how we stumbled into each other when we were both looking the other way. who just tuned in, that was a short fiction piece titled Let's by Elle Marie Harris, published on Matchbook Literary Magazine. Elle Marie's work has been included in the Wigleaf Top 50 and Best Microfictions, and she's an editor for Tramp Set. She lives in the Ozark. 
Coming up next, we have an interview with Jenny Kwong and Kelly Kaur on her new novel, Letters to Singapore. You are listening to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. If you missed the first half of our show, you can always check it out on cjsw.com. Writer's Block is completely produced by a group of volunteers. If you have a piece of creative fiction or poetry that you want us to check it out, you can send it to us at cjsw.writers at gmail.com. Without further ado, here's our next segment. Hi, my name is Jenny for Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Today I'm speaking with Kelly Kaur, uh, author of a new book called Letters to Singapore. So welcome. Hi everyone, this is Kelly Kaur. I am delighted to be here. Alright, and tell us about what prompted you to write the book. This book, yes. This book was definitely an accidental venture. I've wanted to write a book all my life, but never took the opportunity to do so. And 20 years went by. Then in 2019, I was accepted into a writing program for immigrants. And that is when I had this wonderful chance to sit down and actually write the book. But I had no clue what to do. And so I came up with the idea of letters. And my mentor, Aretha Van Herk, said, okay, just write. And that's what I did. And I wrote this book in 100 days. Wow, that's a, that's a fairly quick for a book. And so uh, what was it about the leather format that drew you to it? I was unclear about the format myself. I was just intrigued by the notion. You see, I think writing letters is a very personal and private venture by one person. Now, the idea of reading someone else's letters also intrigues me. It's forbidden. You're not allowed to do it. You are breaking into their secret thoughts. When I started writing the letters, they all formed into some sort of unison that seemed to work. Once I had Simran, the main protagonist, write the first letter then it just made sense that she would write to a number of people. And that's what I had to do, figure out how many people she was going to write her letters to. So tell me about Simran. Who is she? Simran is the main protagonist. She is 20 years old. She has run away, so to speak, from Singapore, from an arranged marriage. She has come to the University of Calgary to get a degree her dream, her passion come true. So when she arrives here at the University of Calgary, she lives on campus at Kananaskis Hall. And that is where her many adventures and mostly misadventures as an immigrant, as a young student, as a woman who's trying to find herself. And those adventures come across in the letters that she writes home to her mummy, her sister, her Chinese friend, Amy, and her South Indian friend, Anita. So all five women uncover secrets that you get to read about in these letters. And so what is it about the 1980s that was a good uh, period that you wanted to write about? It's perfect. I came to Calgary in 1985 to go to the university. Being my first novel, I didn't know what to do 
or how to go about writing a novel. So obviously, I remember the old saying, write about what you know. Therefore, by choosing that time frame, I was able to delve into my experiences, look at what was happening around me, remember the stories, and therefore, when I wrote these letters, they were all true, authentic, and they certainly painted a picture of life from 1985 to 1988, which I think is exciting for someone who is, say, from Calgary, who reads these letters, and they go, I recognize this place. I, I lived on Kananaskis Hall. I know the Calgary Stampede. So it became a very easy unfolding once I decided on the time frame. And so uh, why was it important for Shimran to uh, maintain ties to her family and the community of women that she was a part of? Yes, definitely. When you come as a foreign student, and when Simran in the novel comes to Calgary, she knows no one. Now, when you know no one, you reach out to what is familiar. And what is familiar is far, far away to remember the good old days, no texts, no WhatsApp, no computers. You had to write a letter, mail it, wait one to two weeks, hope they write back to you soon, wait another one to two weeks. So time unfolds. Therefore, by writing to these four women, Simran was able to establish a connection to people who were important to her while she was trying to foster new relationships in Calgary, and some of them were definitely very challenging. And so what was it like in the 80s to uh, arrive in Calgary as a new immigrant? It was challenging. For myself, speaking as Kelly, when I came in 1985, it was very different from Singapore. Singapore buildings, crowds, vibrant. When I landed here in Calgary, I was shocked and surprised by how, how quiet and what a small town it was. And it took a lot of adjusting. For the character as well, Simran, that is obviously a similar experience as she tries to find a new life in this beautiful city of Calgary that is so different from the hustle and bustle of back home Singapore. And so I guess um, it uh, gives a juxtaposition of the different environments uh, she has lived in. The hustle and bustle, as you say, and the more quiet life that Calgary represents for so many who arrive here. That is huge. I think when you say I'm going to go to any country, what more for immigration purposes? You have no concept of that place except what you read. And in those days, in books and photographs. And when you arrive here, the notion and the vision is completely different. And when you're a person of color, like Sim obviously was in the novel, when you come here, you become the outsider. So an immigrant becomes an outsider and struggles to become an insider. And I love that theme of insider-outsider because I think that fits for all of us, no matter who we are. All of us try to always find that comfort level of belonging. And so um, I guess uh, what does it mean to stay in a place for a short time versus a long time? depending on like how uh, the different paths that students will will arrive in Calgary for yeah yes definitely as 
a student myself, speaking as Kelly, definitely in the many years that I was a student, people kept coming and going. There were international students. I had friends from Germany, from England, from all over the world. And even within Canada, I was shocked to find out that people would leave. I thought once you were in Calgary, you would stay here. But no, they went back to Toronto or to the small town they came from, like Troshu. So there was constant need to meet and make new friendships. And so tell me about the program to help, I guess, immigrant writers uh, start new projects, I guess. That yes. That you were a part of, yeah. Yes, that was in 2019. It was developed or organized by the Writers Guild of Alberta and the Alexandra Writers Center. And it was called Borderlines Writers Program. It's now called Own Voices. And the idea is to invite immigrants to submit applications and to, in our case, five of us were selected and we were each given a mentor for the three or four months and we could polish, develop, write anything we wanted and have the help of the community so that our voices would be heard in the Calgarian or Canadian literary landscape. And so how did it help you like to create the... I guess, distinct voices in the novel. The letters. So in my letters, the distinct voices was initially a challenge. Simran was easy. So I could borrow, steal stories and create new stories, fiction, nonfiction, and meld them together. And then when I had the other four characters, I sometimes had to go into the characters and let the characters speak for themselves through me. So it was intriguing because I had to mimic how they would speak, their pattern, their language. For example, Mummy speaks a lot of Singlish and Definitely, I had to put that into the letters so that it would be very similar to how someone like that would speak. And Amy, a Singaporean, was a Princeton graduate. So now you have a modern young woman in 1985 who's educated, who's also a Singaporean. So I had to establish a clear writing pattern, but Singaporean values And every time I did that, I had to make sure that the stories were all very different and each had something important for her that she was going to experience. And so what was it like to wrestle with the different cultural expectations in the novel that I guess different uh, communities have for women? Definitely for Sim, her big challenge was to get married. Some cultures still demand that where a woman is born and her expectation is to be given away in a traditional arranged marriage situation. A lot has changed since then. However, when a woman who's brought up like Sim, who's brought up in a traditional context, comes to a place where you get to make your own choices, she needs to wrestle with demons and life and choices. Because although she appears to be free from a point of geography, from a point of culture and tradition, she's still tied back to her family and their expectations. And no matter how far you are, sometimes you cannot escape them. 
And so what was it like with working with your mentor, Aretha Van Herk? Aretha Van Herk was God sent. When I found out that she was my mentor, they specially selected her for me and I was really, really honored. But when I saw her name, I sat down to write an email to say, I don't think I can work with Aretha Van Herk because I was terrified. And I was not sure I was able to do it. And my daughter, Tegan, who, you know, she's uh, who was 19 at that time, came up to me and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm writing an email. She said, what are you going to say? I said, I'm going to say no to Aretha Van Herk as my mentor. And she said, I forbid you to say no to anything. She said, in this project, in this writing workshop, you must be open and say yes. So, lectured by my daughter, I had no choice. And once I met Aretha, immediately, immediately I was struck by her kindness, her compassion, and her nurturing, and her and the way that she was able to make me feel so comfortable. And the best part is Aretha was traveling all around the world. And she said, that's okay. Just send me the pages, 12, 20 pages every two weeks. And because of that, because of her commitment to me, I felt that I had to step up to the plate and I had to deliver my best. And without her, I think it would have been very challenging. And what is next for the novel itself? Uh, are you continuing on with the tour this, uh, this summer, I guess? Yes, I had the launch in Edmonton, in Calgary, in Regina. And the next one coming up is in Vancouver, June 28th. So that's what's happening. And I hope to go to Singapore and hang out with my fellow Singaporeans and share more about my novel. Thank you very much for your time today. Anything else you'd like to add? I just want to thank Stonehouse Publishing for choosing my manuscript. Lisa Murphy Lamb, she was the best editor and beat me into shape. And everybody else who supported me, I tell you, even though there were five letters, five women in my letters, there were a whole bunch of people who helped me to write this novel that I'm so happy and proud of. So thank you. Thank you again. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Walk. That was my interview with author Kelly Kaur about her debut novel, Letters to Singapore. Kelly Kaur is an instructor at Mount Royal University, Athabasca University, as well as the Institute of Education in Singapore. She is skilled in nonprofit organization, e-learning, and event planning, and has a BA and MA in English from the University of Calgary. You are tuned into another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. If you missed that interview, you can check it out on cjsw.com. CJSW, no adverbs allowed. If you love a good story, stay tuned. We have one coming up next on CJSW. Stars, Meteors, Bombs by Johanna Rocks Knudsen. One minute, nothing, and the next, the seventh plague. 
Hail pounded the house like a rioting crowd and smashed the car into tin foil. It turns out totaled means total loss. The hail was bigger than a ping pong ball, but smaller than a baseball. I don't know the exact size, only the destruction. A week earlier, my husband sprayed the wasp nest under the eaves with a foamy stream of insecticide. A hundred stings can kill you. If you get too close, they mark you with pheromones and chase you down. They're always looking for a fight and a hole to fill. Over 60 years ago, the U.S. government blew Bikini Atoll to hell detonating 23 nuclear devices over 12 years, including two atom bombs and a hydrogen bomb. Before that, they blew up a desert in New Mexico. J. Robert Oppenheimer, father of the bomb, said, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. After Hiroshima, he said, I carry no weight on my conscience. He said many things. In 1967, he died of throat cancer. Fifteen million years ago, a meteor crashed in the mountains of Eastern Europe and exploded with the power of many hydrogen bombs. A hydrogen bomb is a thousand times more powerful than an atom bomb. It was a good thing. No one existed yet. 15 million years ago is an approximation. Carl Sagan said millions, billions, trillions, because a year doesn't matter on a universal scale. All we know is the sky is full of stars, some of which are meteors, some of which are bombs. Hey everyone, this is Maddie Robinson. You just listened to another episode of Writer's Block, broadcasted off the University of Calgary campus. That last short story was by Johanna Knudsen. Johanna Knudsen's writing has appeared in Sycamore Review, Puerto del Sol, Superstition Review, Thread Count, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA from Colorado State University and works as a freelance writer and writing coach in Northern Colorado. Writer's Block is Calgary's monthly foray into the world of publishing, creative written technique, and literature. If you missed our show live, you can always give it a listen at cjsw.com. This episode of Writer's Block featured an interview with Kim Rashidi, as well as an interview with Kelly Kaur, and readings from Elle Marie and Johanna Knudsen. If you enjoyed these artists, I strongly recommend reaching out to them to let them know how much you enjoyed the show. We can't do a literary show without these writers. To finish the draft on this episode's of Writer's Block, we will be featuring one of our weird book segments. Thanks again for tuning in!
Many of our Weird Book segments features books that we find in libraries, on patios, under desks and chairs. But what about books from your adolescence? For tonight's episode of Writer's Block, I decided to scour my shelf to find some old books that needed a dusting, reread them, and see if I felt the same way about them that I did years ago. While there are many books that I could have reviewed, I decided to pick a very old publication back from 2004 called The Barcode Tattoo. The Barcode Tattoo by Suzanne Wayne was originally published in 2004, but saw a republishing uh, in 2012 by Scholastic Incorporated. I personally picked up the book at a book fair. I was one of those teenagers that didn't really hang out with people and just hung around in my closet and read all day. So when I saw the book, I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to spend some time alone. Back when I was 13 years old, the book was an easy read. So reading it when I was 24 was a breeze. I got through it in one night. Yet even though the writing level was adolescent, the themes are actually quite adult, and I still found myself thinking about the books days and weeks later. Part of the reason I was so enthralled in this novel is because the novel, while written in 2004, takes place in 2025, a year that is now becoming closer and closer to reality. So I thought it would be fun to review the barcode tattoo as an adult to see how close Suzanne Wayne's novel was to the reality we are living in. Without further ado, let's take a look at the plot of the novel. The novel opens with high school protagonist Kayla Reed, a young artsy girl who, of course, like all female young adult protagonists, doesn't fit in. The inciting incident of the novel begins with her contemplating post-secondary options. You see, young Kayla is an artist and she would like to pursue her dreams, but she recognizes her limitations, as in the setting of this novel, most art has become digitized and created through AI algorithms. While her crisis first appears to be the result of a job market reality for a digital age, the plot quickens into something a lot deeper as Kayla approaches her 17th birthday and begins to recognize that the world around her is becoming more and more structured by systems of digital control. Methods of identification, including the titular barcode tattoo, have been steeped into the culture consciousness enough that they eventually become mandatory. Yet something doesn't feel quite right about this to Kayla so she chooses to investigate this phenomenon and has to decide between conformity and individuality, access and identity, and control versus freedom. The most intriguing aspect of this novel's plot and setting is the phenomenon of the barcode tattoo. In this world created by Suzanne Wayne, everyone at the age of 17 receives a tattoo on their arm of a barcode. In the beginning of the novel, Kayla observes these tattoos quite passively, noting their effect on society. Kayla notes how bizarre it is to be branded like a box of cereal. She asks if people mind being counted as just one more product on a shelf. While Kayla is only in high school, the barcode tattoo slowly pushes in around the novel's plot and Kayla's life like the bars of a cage. Kayla notes that people use the code to pay for things, it also functions as a driver's license or an ID, and that it even includes healthcare information. 
While Kayla first tries to passively resist getting the tattoo, as something doesn't feel quite right about it, eventually she has to make a choice. Will she get in to fit in with the rest of her friends? Or will she embark on an adventure and become a revolutionary? Because this is a young adult novel, you can probably guess the answer to that. While the characters in this novel can admittedly be a little lackluster, what is truly interesting is the world building. Kayla's fascination with the barcode tattoo extends to the reader. What are these things and how do they function? What does society look like in 2025, according to Suzanne Wayne? On the surface, there are many similarities with our society, albeit with some technological differences. In the novel, Kayla notes that paper money and coins have been pushed out and phased out over the five years leading up to the events of the novel, an example from around 2020 to 2025. This foreshadowing of the economy greatly influences the plot and events of the novel, as young Kayla has no way to pay for things without being tracked, which is difficult when you're part of a revolution. This book is a really quick read, and even back when I was only 13, I remember breezing through it and questioning the obvious issues with pacing. Occasionally, you flip to a chapter and find you have to reread the previous page to make sure you didn't miss something, bringing you out of the novel. Still, The Barcode Tattoo is a great read and I would recommend it for any adolescent looking to question their society around them. While the book has an interesting conclusion, there are still two follow-up novels written by Suzanne Wayne. As I've only read the first one, I'll have to get back to all of you next episode to tell you what the second and third books are like. I'll leave our listeners with a couple big questions posed by the novel. What do you think society will look like in 2025? If you had to choose between your personal intuition and the world around you, would you have the guts to follow your heart? Would you be willing to run off into the mountains to escape society? And finally, if you were asked to get a barcode tattoo, would you? I may not be able to tell you how this book series will end yet, but I can say that for most of these questions, I, for one, know my answer. Thanks for listening!